All right. Well, uh, good morning, Summit Church, and Happy New Year. Uh, as Brian said, uh, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm actually one of the uh, three non-staff pastors, which basically just means that um, so I'm not employed uh, by the Summit Church. My wife and I, uh, we, own a, uh, we own a painting business. I think Brian said that uh, as well. And so that's what we do full-time. Uh, we really love uh, what we do. We've been doing that now for um, close to five years. Uh, but this morning, I get the privilege uh, to teach you out of Luke uh, chapter 2, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, but before we get into the main text, I wanted to start with a passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So I'm going to be reading from uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, it should be up on the screen so you can follow along, because this is uh, not from the text we just read, obviously. So, uh, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, uh, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." So uh, here's what I'm after in reading this uh, as a precursor to the actual sermon. Uh, It's really just uh, two things. Uh, So that you know where I'm going with this, the first for me uh, is a confession to you. And then the second thing uh, is really just a plea. Um, So let's start with a confession, uh, which is kind of weird to start a sermon with. Like I probably understand that might be a little strange, but um, it's not. Like I'm not going to bare my soul, so to speak, before you uh, in a weird way, hopefully. See, as I'm up here, like, I resonate with Paul's fear and trembling. Like, for me, uh, I don't do this professionally. Um, <laughs> I can think of, like, a lot of other things I'd rather be doing uh, than this. Uh, <laughs> and, like, as I prepared for this sermon, uh, like, I-, I literally came up with excuse uh, after excuse. Like, my wife listened to these over and over and over again uh, about why, like, I'm- I shouldn't be up here. Um, like, there's people more qualified. Uh, there's people like Brian, uh, and he actually likes to do this. Uh, like weekly, which like for me, I'm like, I don't even understand how you can do that. Uh, weekly, uh, there's people more intelligent, uh, like there's people more articulate. Uh, but see, for me, like God's put his finger on this thing in my life and it's called, uh, you love the approval of men and care more about what they think of you, uh, than the approval that Jesus has already given you. See, in 20 or so years of following Jesus, here's like one thing that I've learned. Like when it comes to pursuing the dark places in our hearts, Like, God the Holy Spirit has this, like, single-minded stubbornness. And it's like my 19-month-old daughter, like, like when she fixates on a toy, right? And she doesn't have a lot of, like, vocabulary. It's like one of her words is, like, more. Uh, And so she'll fixate on a toy and she'll say, more, 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 more. And finally, I'm like, fine. Like, I'll get the toy for you. Just whatever it takes, just, like, stop. Um, And so... (laughs) Like, I think about God, and he's like, he's placed his finger on this thing in my life and said, look, like, I don't want you to fear uh, the approval of men. And so, like, here's the thing that I know about this. Like, I'm not alone in this. And so here's the second part. Here's my plea. Like, maybe it's not the fear of man for you and getting up in front of others to preach a sermon. But, man, it's something. Like, take a moment and think about what that thing is, the place of disobedience that you just don't want to give to Jesus like the new step of faith that he's asking you to walk in and you just don't want to take that step. Like maybe it's reconciling a broken relationship or walking away from one you know isn't honoring to him. 
Like maybe it's sharing the gospel with a friend or a coworker. See, he's like shined a light in that place and it's time for you to walk in it. But the difference between God uh, and my daughter is that like uh, my daughter's single-minded fixation is for her own joy. And while like the Holy Spirit, he's working for yours and mine. Okay, so like we should stop resisting him, like stop running, stop hiding. See, like I'm, I'm up here on stage, like part of me, like my heart is like pounding and I'm like, oh, my hands are sweaty. Like I just don't, like, this isn't my thing. Uh, and like, I feel like I'm like way outside of my comfort zone. This is way above my pay grade. Uh, but like I'm fighting to like walk by faith. And hopefully like as I fight to walk by faith, like I can encourage some of you to do that same thing, that you would walk by faith, that you would actually trust him, that you would actually take a step out and go, okay, like I'm going to believe that this is good for my joy. It's good for my soul. Like it's good for me to follow him. All right. So that's my first sermon. Uh, So let's jump into my second, uh, which is just out of Luke chapter two. Uh, As I was reading and rereading this text, the thing that kept jumping out to me was expectations I mean, we all have them. Uh, Like, you go to a restaurant, and if you're a food snob, your expectations are really high. Mine typically are not. Uh, I am a quantity over quality kind of guy. I appreciate good food, uh, but but I like a lot of of food. Uh, So, uh, but you have expectations about what you eat. Uh, You have expectations about everything. You have expectations about uh, how the Broncos will play on any given Sunday. But in a positive way, uh, two names came to my mind when I thought about expectations, so uh, think back to the show. I don't know if any of you guys watch this. Uh, it's called Britain's Got Talent. Uh, all right, some of you. Uh, and if you remember, it's pretty much just like any of the other American talent shows. Uh, the expectation for the person who wins that show is incredibly high. But as we watch the early auditions, right, like there's a tension. Uh, we're not sure if the person getting ready to perform is going to flop or if they're going to flourish. Like we just don't know like what that's going to look like. Uh, sometimes people get up on stage thinking they have a certain gift to sing or a certain gift uh, to perform. And most likely it was like a well-meaning grandmother or like a relative uh, that set them up for failure. Uh, What was said was like, man, sweetheart, you sing beautifully. You should probably uh, do that professionally, right? What should have been said out of love was like, sweetheart, we love you. Um, But like maybe sports is your thing. Or like maybe we should try like academics or like art, um, anything but this. Uh, so their failure to speak the truth to their children becomes like our material for comedy, and we laugh, and we're like, that's incredible. Uh, but back to the two names. If you remember, uh, there was a guy named Paul Potts uh, and another woman named Susan Boyle. Uh, they were the exception to this. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to speak to Paul Potts. And, uh, but if you haven't watched the YouTube video, like after the sermon and, and after we're done here, uh, you know, take your phone and go watch it. They're, they're incredible. Uh, for Paul Potts, so here's kind of, here's how the scene, uh, here's what it looks like. Basically, uh, he's backstage and they're interviewing. He's like, yeah, I don't have a lot of self-confidence and I'm not sure how this is going to go. And so like they send him out and he walks up, uh, onto the stage. And, uh, and as he walks up on the stage, like I, there's no way, like I tried, I tried to think about this. Uh, there's no way to like say this nicely. Like he's just not that impressive. Okay. That, that's probably about the nicest way I can say it. Like he's, um, yeah, if I go any further, it's just going to get bad. So uh, he's, not, uh, he's not all that impressive. Uh, the judges look at him and they go, all right, Paul, uh, what are you going to do for us tonight? And he basically says, um, I'd like to sing opera, okay? Now, 
Like when I watched this video and I, like, I, I saw that, like my immediate kind of knee-jerk like reaction was, uh, this is going to sound like a dog and a very large cat uh, got in a fight and both of them lost. Like this is just going to go uh, really poorly. Uh, so they cue the music, like the lights go down, and uh, Paul opens his mouth and starts to sing opera. And I can't do it justice trying to describe it, so you just need to go watch the video. Uh, but suffice it to say that like, they pan out into the crowd and like people are crying. Like they're crying. That's how incredible this is. Like I'm watching this like I'm crying. Like my like not like a little bit of dusty, like like tears flowing down my face. Like that's how this is going down. Uh, Simon Cowell, who's like one of the most difficult judges ever, he's like slack-jawed. Like he's kind of sitting there like, that's crazy. Uh, one of the other female judges, uh, she looks like literally she's about to pass out. Um, I mean, it's just it's just wild. Uh, and, and so, like, there's this moment where it's incredible. And in that moment, Paul Potts not only met our high expectations for the winner of the competition, he greatly exceeded them. In an opposite and somewhat of an appalling way, uh, I'm going to take you back to middle school for me. Uh, middle school is like a treasure trove of, um, of illustrations and, and really uh, bad stories that are really funny. Uh, and so for me, in, uh, in middle school, I had a group of friends. We were pretty dumb, not intellectually, uh, hopefully, but uh, more like we did really dumb stuff. Um, and one of the dumb things that we did was, uh, was during the day, uh, or well, like you would go to cafeteria, right? And it's like a buffet line. And you would get your food, uh, and then you would go to uh, the salad bar, and you would get your salad. And at the very end is the dessert row. And, uh, and at the dessert row, uh, we love the day uh, where it was white icing cake day, okay? So here's what we would do. Uh, we would snatch off a whole lot of white icing cake, as many pieces uh, as the four of us could hoard onto a tray. Uh, one of my other friends at the deli section of the cafeteria is getting a giant uh, bowl of mayonnaise. So you can see where this is going. Uh, we would then, yeah, uh, we would then take it back uh, to our table. We would scrape the white icing off and then plaster the mayonnaise as smoothly as we could on the pieces, sneak them back up to the line and watch <laughs> and wait. Uh, we would wait for that unsuspecting uh, student. We would wait for that unsuspecting teacher. Uh, and, and there's expectations with cake, right? Like you think about cake and you're like, man, I love cake. Like cake is good. Uh, cake is going to be sweet. It's going to be moist. And then it's like, oh, is that mayonnaise? Like, so, so like this person would take a bite and we would just sit there and laugh. Like we thought it was the funniest thing uh, ever. And so, yeah, uh, so middle school. Uh, in a more serious way, especially as we start this new year, like maybe you resonate with me, watch, uh, with me watching Paul Potts meet and exceed expectations to win a talent competition. Uh, when you think about your expectations you have for your spouse, your career, your kids, uh, you desire to see those things happen. Like if any of you are goal setters, so like Andrea and I, like we, we do this every year at the start of the year. We set goals. Part of those are business. Part of those are personal. They're financial, like all kinds of things like that. Uh, goals are nothing more than written expectations with measurable deadlines. So on some level, all of us have felt the joy of when our highest expectations have been met or exceeded. Like think about the day you got your first job offer out of school or maybe your wedding day or the joy you felt at finding out your wife was pregnant with your son or your daughter. 
Like those are monumental moments that carry the weight of great expectations that bring great fulfillment. It's like on the flip side, for some of you, as you look back on 2016, uh, it's like what you were expecting was cake, right? And then what you got was, well, it wasn't cake at all. Like it just wasn't. Uh, it was far from uh, cake. Maybe it's the pain that comes from having a certain vision for your life, and life ended up looking very different. Like maybe you experienced a betrayal by a close friend or some kind of serious dysfunction in your family. Like maybe you have a conflict in your marriage or your job is difficult and isn't bringing the fulfillment you want. You had expectations, and what reality served you was something on your plate that just left like a bad taste in your mouth. We're going to take a, uh, a look at Luke 2, and we're going to meet four people who are going to come face-to-face with their own expectations. We'll start with Simeon, who's going to have his greatest expectations met. <clears throat> then we're going to look at Mary and Joseph and how they have their expectations turned upside down. <laughs> Lastly, we'll look at a woman named Anna and how she responds to God's fulfillment of her longing and expectation. So let's read. Uh, We're going to read verses 22 to 24 to start, and then we'll get going. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So uh, think of this as the precursor that helps the next scene not seem so awkward. Kind of like when somebody says, like, I know what I'm about to say is a little weird or difficult, so let me just prepare you for that. Like, that's kind of like what this is in my mind. Uh, Because in the next scene, a random guy who we've never met before, whose name is Simeon, is going to walk up to Joseph and Mary to provide them with a word about their kid of some time, which, once again, in our context is a little bit strange, but I think once we work this out, it's not going to seem as weird as it might uh, on the front end. See, the context for this is the temple. Now think with me for a minute about the entire Old Testament and the purpose of the temple. Like the Jewish nation would have been coming here for millennia to be in God's presence and offer sacrifices to him. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 25.8, God gives the command to Moses to build a sanctuary so that he can dwell in their midst. And then not more than a few chapters later, in Exodus 33.5, the Lord makes it clear to Moses that if the people were in his presence, like he would kill them, right? For emphasis, let's just read the text. So like 33.5 says this. Uh, this is God speaking to the Israelites. You are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Like he's not holding any punches here. Like that's, uh, like I would just kill you, okay? That, that's like how it would go if the people try and approach God. And yet there's this command where it's like, Um, I want to dwell in your midst. So suffice it to say that the temple and the sanctuary are this like place of tension, like there's a little bit of an understatement there. Uh, It's where they met with God, but also where they came face to face with his holiness and their own sinfulness. See, Luke uses words here with razor-like intent when he says things like purification and holy and sacrifice. So keep that in your back pocket because it brings so much clarity to the scene we're about to look at with Simeon. So let's talk about Simeon. Luke says in verse 25 that he's righteous and he's devout. Luke also says that he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. Now I think it's important to note that the first is not divorced from the second. What I mean by this is that his waiting and hoping and longing 
is correlated directly to his righteousness. Luke calls him righteous precisely because he is waiting and he is longing for God's salvation. Like we would call this faith. His expectations, as it were, are placed on God's promise to bring about salvation. He's going to the temple where he meets with God, but is longing for the day that God will dwell among his people, not in a temple made with human hands, but in the human heart by faith. Like Simeon would have known the Old Testament, he would have known from the book of Genesis that Abraham had restoration with God because he waited with expectation and faith for God to make good on his promises. He believed God just as Simeon was believing God, and God declared him righteous. Or that Moses had the same expectation of faith in God's promises and declared in Deuteronomy 30 that there's a day of restoration coming where the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you might live. He would have been waiting and hoping for the day from the prophet Jeremiah of the righteous branch from the house of David who would bring salvation and justice. This person's name would be our righteousness, and in his rule, we would rest securely. All of this he would have been waiting on. This person, this promise he had placed all his expectations in. Now the text goes on to say in verses 26 and 27 that he is moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple on a specific day because the Holy Spirit had also spoken to him and told him that he would see God's promise of salvation fulfilled before he died. Now let's just stop for a moment and think about that. Everything he's, like, he's placed his hope in is happening. I mean, imagine like what he's feeling. Like he's probably thinking like in his mind, like, is this a false alarm? Did I hear like the Holy Spirit right? Let's put our, like, for a second, like, let's put ourselves in his shoes and think about this. So, like, I'm not a huge baseball fan, um, but when I was thinking about this for the first time, uh, the thing that came to my mind was this past fall uh, and the World Series. Now, uh, if you don't know what I'm referencing now, then you were probably living under a rock or. Uh, you care nothing for sports. And that's fine. Uh, I'll explain here. So the Cubs and the Indians played in the World Series. And the reason this was a big deal, maybe bigger than most, was both of them had kind of this long period of time uh, since they had won it, the Cubs more than the Indians. Now, for me, just as a heads up, the last time I really cared about baseball was like the 95 Braves. Like my parents watched it. And so growing up, like that's what we did in the evenings. And and I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. We didn't have a major league baseball team. So it's kind of like, okay, which one's the closest? Oh, they're really good. Uh, Let's watch them. And then I kind of fell in love with them. Uh, But then like I went on a baseball hiatus. Like I, I haven't watched it. I don't really care about it. Uh, but even for me, like I was drawn in uh, to this feeling of like anticipation and expectations. Like the Cubs hadn't won this thing in 108 years. Now, just to give us context here, like here's a few things to consider. 108 years ago, uh, the Eiffel Tower was the tallest building in the world. Now it doesn't even break into the top 100. Like 108 years ago, uh, the Cubs didn't have plastic helmets because plastic wasn't a thing, right? Hadn't been invented yet. Uh, 108 years ago, sliced bread, consumer radio, coffee filters, penicillin, ballpoint pens, none of that existed. And 108 years ago, the Model T Ford had just gone into production. Basically, we didn't have cars 108 years ago, okay? It's a long, long time. And for me, like, as I, like, I was swept up into this as I watched the last three games, uh, like I had this thought, 
uh, when the last pitch was thrown, I was like, oh, finally. <laughs> like, finally they've won. And for me, I'd been watching three games. Like, some people literally have been waiting, like, centuries, like a century. Uh, I was like, I can go to bed. Um, I have to be up at four in the morning because we're contractors and that's what we do. But uh, so there it is. Um, a writer for the Chicago Tribune said it like this. Uh, the catchphrase Cubs fans uttered over the last century and change has been just one before I die. A plea that fell on deaf ears decade after decade. Well, you can die in peace now, thanks to Joe Madden's resilient club. Now, if we place this much weight and hope on a baseball team winning, which if we can just be honest for a minute, man, like, it's just baseball. Like, it's just baseball. It is not significant in the grand scheme of history. Like, just think about what Simeon is experiencing as he takes the baby Jesus in his arms. Finally, like, everything that matters for all eternity that I've been waiting for and hoping for is coming true. Simeon has an expectation that is nothing short of miraculous. In verses 29 to 32, he proclaims about this child what God has promised millennia ago. Peace between men and God. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And it's being fulfilled before his very eyes. Remember the words that Luke uses at the start that I told you to hang on to. Purification. Holy. Sacrifice. This baby literally embodies all those things. Like the Cubs fans who've waited over 108 years, Simeon, in the same breath, can die in peace. But see, here's the thing. Like, it's a peace that matters. Like, it matters. It's a peace that doesn't find its foundation on something so temporal as baseball. Like, it's a peace with God that carries the expectation of eternity. See, this is a beautiful thing to watch within the Summit family. I've watched as some of you have taken a step of faith to confess your brokenness to God and then believe Jesus could actually forgive your sins. Like, I've watched our members confess and repent to one another in city groups. I've watched us declare in solidarity, like Simeon, that there's only one who brings peace. Like, all acts of faith and all pictures of believing and expecting God to make good on his promises. Some of you simply need to ask God to do what God has promised and then watch him make good on it. And thinking through all this, I'm asking God that we would be a people like Simeon and that we would expect great things of God in line with his promises and watch as God is pleased to come through at just the right time. So the scene continues with Simeon talking, uh, but it's, instead of it being a dialogue between Simeon and the Lord, uh, he turns his attention to Mary and speaks directly to her. Now, it's clear that Mary and Joseph are already walking in some shell shock. Uh, the word Luke uses in verse 33 is that they marvel. Like, think uh, shock and awe. They're probably speechless. Uh, they're already feeling this sense of eternity because of what was just said. Uh, now, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but we need to remember that Mary and Joseph uh, are real flesh and blood parents that have very real hopes and dreams for their son that are their own. And what we're about to witness, though, is that their expectations for parenthood are about to be challenged. Now, um, I'm a dad of a 19-month-old daughter, uh, and my wife is 20 months uh, pregnant with our son. And I would be lying to you um, if I told you that I don't have, like, expectations for them. Like, I hope 
uh, that I'm not like the crazy dad that like lives vicariously through his kids where I'm just like, okay, my kids' victories are like my victories and like their intelligence is mine. Like when, 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 uh, when they win a game, like I'm like, oh, my life matters. Uh, like I don't want to be that guy, uh, but I would be lying to you if I told you that I didn't have expectations for my kids. Like I, I want them to be successful. Uh, like I, I want them to be smart. I want them to be educated uh, I want them to have families of their own. Like, I want them to be uh, safe. And if somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, Drew, um, uh, like, so like, say this is a Sunday morning, somebody comes up to me and they go, hey, Drew, uh, I have a word for you about your daughter, and it's pretty much in opposition to everything I just said. Like, um, God's going to call your daughter, and maybe she's going to go to a place that's far away from here, and it's actually a place that's not really safe. Uh, because she's going to be called to uh, testify and speak to the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ, and people will hate her for that. Like, my, my knee-jerk reaction, like, in that would be like, man, you're out of your mind. Like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you misheard the Lord in that. But he, here's kind of the deal. Like, maybe he would call her to do that. Like, maybe he would lead her uh, to do that. The point here is that Mary and Joseph would have been like any other parent throughout all of history. I have hopes and dreams for my kids. Like Simeon comes and he just like blows all that up. So like, let's kind of walk through this uh, because it just gets dark pretty quick. Uh, Here's what he says about their son. In verse 34, Simeon says that, uh, that Mary's son is a sign that is going to be opposed. As I said earlier, my desire to be liked is pretty high, but even more so uh, for my daughter. When I even think about someone not liking her or being mean to her, uh, I have kind of these like mama bear tendencies where I just want to step in. So like, uh, let's run a scenario. Like a little kid uh, comes up to her, pushes her down. She starts crying and I'm like, oh, you want to see somebody get pushed down? Okay. Uh, you know, or like a toy gets stolen uh, from my daughter. Once again, she breaks down into tears and I'm like, all right, I'm going to show you what it looks like when a man steals your toy. Uh, like, that's kind of my initial, like, knee-jerk reaction when I feel like my daughter is getting opposed. And, like, here Simeon is just telling Mary and Joseph, like, look, your son uh, is going to live in opposition. In verse 34, again, Simeon tells Mary and Joseph that his life and his message will raise some up and strike others down. See, few people like conflict, but it seems once again that his life is going to be marked by it. Like Jesus is the name you don't mention over dinner. He's the lightning rod that's so polarizing, it immediately makes people feel uneasy and awkward. Like Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian, brings this out really well. He starts one of his routines uh, with, uh, tonight, uh, like I'm really glad you guys are here. I want everybody to feel really comfortable. Um, That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Right? And everybody kind of laughs. They're like, oh, that's really funny because I'm at a comedy show. But imagine for a second, like, if he was serious. Like, everybody kind of does this. Like, they're like, oh, oh. like, he really actually is going to talk to us about Jesus, right? See, he's tapping into the divisive nature of Jesus. To speak about him is to immediately take a side in a cosmic battle and to remain silent provides no escape from his divisiveness. Like all men and women will stand or fall based on what they do or don't do with him. Once again, like when I think about my kids, I'm just not sure I want them to be that controversial. Like if if they take a role in the public arena, like maybe, uh, you know, they they have some kind of job where they're known and they're seen and 
and different things like that. Um, like, I certainly don't want them to be a lightning rod for controversy. Like, I want them to be loved. I want them to be respected. Like, I want them to be appreciated. I want them to be liked. Okay, so let's keep going. It gets worse. Uh, here's the hardest one to hear as parents. Uh, continuing through verse 34, Simeon says that his life will bring Mary the kind of grief that it is so difficult to bear. It's like getting struck at the core of who she is. See, as a parent, the only thing I can think of that brings that kind of grief is the death of your child. I've never walked in that. I hope I don't have to. Uh, but can you imagine being given the news that the eight-day-old child in your arms is on a trajectory to his death and it'll bring you grief like you will never experience in any other capacity. Like just like take, take a moment and like feel the weight, kind of the heaviness of what he's telling her. Like some of you have probably experienced this maybe through a miscarriage or something, but like the loss of a child is devastating. And like here Mary is being told from the outset, like this is the direction. Like this is the direction it's going for him. Okay, now the text does take a turn, and here's the beautiful proclamation. Uh, Simeon goes on to say, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Now, on the surface, that might not sound like a beautiful proclamation. I think hopefully my job here is to help you see that it is. Uh, See, Mary and Joseph are having their parental expectations changed to line up with the heart of God. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're sitting uh, in this room because God revealed the brokenness in your heart through his son. See, Mary's son was opposed so that you wouldn't have to be. Like, her son was divisive so that you could experience unity with God and man. Like, her son had the cross in sight from the cradle so you wouldn't have to experience death. See, he was all of those things on your behalf. For some of you, uh, you need to have your expectations challenged. You're asking from God either something he has never promised or something that is clearly against his will revealed to us in the Bible. Some of you in here don't place your hope and expectation on, like in him at all. Like You look to an experience, friends, work, things, sex. Like, See, the Bible has a word called repentance, which simply means to experience a change of mind that leads to changed action, actions. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in England in the 1800s, said it like this. It should be up on the screen so you can follow along there. Repentance is the discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. See, here's my hope in this. It's that at the Summit Church, like we would repent of our misplaced expectations and place them on the Son of God. Remember, he was opposed. He was divisive. He died. He did all of that so your expectations and hope might not be in something or someone, but in him. So as we keep going, uh, Luke seemingly switches gears on us in the middle of a conversation that honestly I kind of would have, have liked to have heard the end of. Like, how does Mary respond to that? Like, did, did Joseph even say anything? Like, I mean, he's just quiet. 
Uh, Mary and Joseph just received some of the most difficult news imaginable. Like, imaginable. like how do you walk away from that? Uh, but Luke, for our purposes, wants to point us to another person that's at the temple. Uh, her name's Anna, and she's a prophetess. Basically, she was God's mouthpiece to speak his words to the people. She was in good company, as the Old Testament mentions Miriam, uh, who's the sister of Aaron and Moses, as a prophetess and a few others. Now, she's pretty similar to Simeon in that Luke uses similar phrases in verses 25 and verse 38. Verse 25 says that he, Simeon, was waiting on the consolation of Israel. And verse 38 says she, Anna, was speaking to all those who were waiting on the redemption of Israel. See how both refer to this longing for God's salvation? But here, here's like what I want to highlight with Anna. And it's two things pretty quick. Uh, it's how she responds when God meets her greatest longing. Remember, she, just like Simeon, has been waiting an extremely long period of time, and she responds, number one, uh, with thankfulness. Okay, so, so think about this for a second. It's 80-something years for her. Uh, she has not grown bitter. She has not grown angry. She's not, like, frustrated. She's like, oh, finally. Like, finally, you've done something. Like, the text simply just says that she was thankful. She was really, really thankful. Thank you, God, for doing what you said uh, you would do. And it's literally a lifetime for her. God comes through on the promise, and she gives thanks to him. The second thing she responds with is proclamation. Now, this isn't as weird as it may seem uh, if you think back to the Cubs winning the World Series. So uh, if you remember when the Cubs won uh, the World Series, uh, there was this phrase that was kind of uttered all over social media. It was hashtag Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, like people were uh, talking about it. And the phrase was fly the W. Now for me, I was like, I have no idea what that even means. So I had to Google search it and be like, all right, I, you know, I don't even understand. Uh, but I'm since, uh, I've since been uh, enlightened. So uh, fly the W, it was everywhere. Uh, and, and here's kind of the point uh, of that. The point of that is like we can't stop talking about that which we love, like that which we're excited about, that which has given us so much hope, so much uh, peace. See, here's my hope in all of this is that we would be a people like Anna, that like as Anna has waited on God, and you see how she responds when God comes through and fulfills his promise, that she is thankful She's not angry, she's not frustrated, she's not bitter. She's just thankful. And it's not that she probably didn't feel those things, but that the text says that she's thankful. That, that's kind of the overwhelming posture of her heart towards God. So it's not that there's not a permission to feel some of that, uh, because I think sometimes, like, like we do, we're kind of like, God, where are you? Why haven't you done this? Like, I've been asking and waiting and pleading. Uh, but in the midst of that, that we carry ourselves with a posture of gratitude. And then when God does what God has said he is going to do, that we would respond with proclamation. And not like in a weird way, like you don't have to go down on a street corner and just kind of like hold up a sign and be like, let me tell you about what God's done. Uh, you know, because that can be kind of strange, but like uh, you have people that trust you, you have people that respect you, you have uh, kind of a sphere of influence is how we would say this. Uh, you have all of those things, and like you have an opportunity to speak to those people who trust you, who respect you, who you walk alongside of and be like, let me tell you about like the redemption. And you don't even have to use language like that. Let me tell you about how God has restored uh, this relationship. Let me tell you about God has reconciled my family. Let me tell you about how God has done this and this and this. 
And that's not a weird thing. Like, that's a beautiful thing. It only makes sense. See, the church has always been a people of expectations. Like, in this passage, we've got an insight into four people who've either had their expectations met or had their expectations challenged and changed. What I'm asking from the Spirit of God is that as we've looked at these saints that have gone before us, the one thing they all had in common is Jesus. See, it's only in him that our greatest hope and expectations would be fulfilled. Like, remember what Simeon says, now, like now is the time that I can die in peace. Like, remember his words to Mary, so that many hearts would be revealed. See, at the cross, the God-man, Jesus Christ, took our failed expectations on himself. He lived in the continued expectation of the presence of God as part of the eternal Godhead and then experienced the devastation of that loss when he was crucified in our place. No other person or experience can do that for you. Like, maybe you're like Simeon and Anna, and God is calling you to persevere in your faith in Jesus Like the challenge for us is to endure. Or maybe you're like Mary and Joseph and you need to have your expectations challenged. Like whatever it is, my hope is that God's spirit would do in you what I can and that he would soften your heart and give you the faith to believe in Jesus. Like he's the only one, the only one who can bear the weight of your expectation. You'll join with me, let's pray. Father, I'm really grateful uh, for this morning. I'm grateful for uh, your example uh, or or the example that you've given to us uh, with Simeon and Anna, uh, with Joseph and Mary. And just as we think through 2016 and we think through what our expectations may or may not be and what we want to see happen, uh, that you would create within us a heart that longs for you to fulfill your promises. And as we wait for you to fulfill your promises and as we even watch your promises before our very eyes get fulfilled, uh, that we would respond in thankfulness, uh, that we would respond uh, in, uh, in just joy, uh, that we would respond in proclamation. For those of us in the room that maybe have, uh, need to have their expectations challenged, maybe some people in here don't believe on Jesus. They're kind of like, I'm not even sure what I believe about all this. I pray uh, that they would think long and hard about Jesus and what he uh, claims and what his expectation on their life would be. Um, just ask that you would do that, uh, that you would do the work through your spirit even now. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.